Hello and welcome to episode one of season two of The Artist's Creed. My name is Drew Miller. I'm producer of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network and conversation partner with Steve Guthrie for this season. Before we begin this first episode, I wanted to give a brief introduction to this season and how it's going to go. It all started with a blog series that Steve Guthrie wrote last year in the thick of 2020 called Spirit and Sound. It consisted of six different posts that all explored how the sounding world around us can tell us and show us a little bit about the character and person of the Holy Spirit. Those posts were so wonderful that when Steve and I were talking about what to do for season two of this podcast, we decided, hey, let's just dig into the nuances and subtleties of those posts and just leave no stone unturned. Just ask all the questions and have a conversation dedicated to each of the six posts. So that's what we did. And this first episode was actually filmed video as well as audio for Hutchmoot Homebound 2020, which took place in October of last year. It was the first ever digital remote version of our annual arts conference, Hutchmoot. And we premiered this first episode of season two of The Artist's Creed as a sort of special treat for our guests. Um, So now that video is available to everybody on the Rabbit Room website. So if you want to watch this conversation as well as listen, then you are welcome to go find that at rabbitroom.com. And one more note before we begin. In each episode's show notes, you'll find a link to the blog post that corresponds with that episode. So this first episode is about the first blog post in Steve's series called The Sound That Breath Makes. So if you click on that link, it'll take you to that original blog post that started it all, and you can read that as well as listen to our conversation about that post. So throughout these next six weeks, feel free to do that. Read along, listen along. Um, This is an ongoing conversation that uh, we invite you into, and we're so glad that you're joining us for it. So thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy season two of The Artist's Creed. Part one of Spirit and Sound begins with a, an excerpt from the gospel according to John. The pneuma, or spirit, blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. Acts 2, verses 1 to 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound. And from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, one of the scribes asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel. Hmm. So my first question to you, Steve, and I'm just going to, I'm bringing these questions as a student. I've read your post and I have these questions that I personally want to ask. Okay. So this first one is why spirit and sound? Why not spirit and color or spirit and smell? Is there something distinctive about the sense of sound that gives it, gives us a unique insight into the Holy Spirit as opposed to other senses? Why does sound enjoy this privileged position? There are two ways that I would want to answer that. I mean, I, and two different kinds of answers to that. Um, One way of answering that is there probably are, we could probably reflect theologically on the sense of smell, and we could probably reflect theologically on the the existence of color in the world, but I'm interested in sound. But I think in some ways, sound is an overlooked sense. Um, That is to say, well, at least in terms of how we engage scripture, for instance, for most of human history, most people who engaged scripture Mm -hmm. engaged with it orally and orally. Hmm. Yeah. Both because for most of history, the number of people who are literate are relatively few. Yeah. Um, and also because most of history books are relatively scarce. Mm. 
And certainly, um, in terms of you know the the biblical letters themselves, yeah. their initial presentation, um, the 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 people who were receiving the letter to the Romans, most of them would have heard it mm-hmm. rather than read it, um, and there is um, there is a significance to kind of um, hearing as an element of discipleship, as a part of the Christian life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So that the Christian life for a lot of history involved hearing the word of God, mm-hmm. um, reciting the creeds, um, singing the Psalms. So all of these things that took place in the oral realm. Yeah. And in our, you know, contemporary environment, we primarily engage with scripture and often even primarily undertake discipleship textually and silently. So I think it's worth thinking about, you know, what what is distinctive about the oral realm and how might God be at work there? That's part of the answer. And we can, I can it seems like I feel like you have a follow-up question brewing. So of course I do. You, I yeah. always do. Well, I, I have a few thoughts. So some people who might be watching this um, might have been at a Hutchmoot a couple of uh, hi there um, might have been at a Hutchmoot a couple of years ago. Um, gosh, was it? Yeah, uh, maybe 2018, I think, where the letter of Ephesians was recited hmm. to us as um, by an actor who. Hmm. Um, his whole purpose of this uh, sort of production of sorts is to recapture how those letters from Paul would have been perceived by um, its recipients. Because it's not like everybody got an email from Paul on like, you know, CC'd on this big list and like, oh, what does Paul have to say? You know, um, yeah. but no, like they were gathered together and, and heard someone recite this letter to them who was able to do so yeah. and, and received that. And it kind of, that gets me going in the direction of just thinking of some, um, I'm, I can't think of specifically the passages off the top of my head, but I feel like there's some Psalms that speak of kind of digesting and chewing the word of God, like it's something that yeah. you hear and you taste even to bring it in another sense. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. So that, I mean, when, and of course I'm not, you know, when we're thinking about the sounding world, I'm not only interested in scripture mm-hmm. as a sounding phenomenon, but, you know, when we read scripture and hear it read, when we speak scripture and have it read, then our encounter with scripture has an embodied dimension Mm -hmm. and it has an aesthetic dimension. Wow, yeah. Um, So the word aesthetic comes from the Greek aesthesis, which means that which engages our senses. Mm. But when we speak the words of scripture or hear them spoken, we are concerned not just with, I don't know, their conceptual content, but also with their embodied form. And they become objects that we can, those words become objects that we can appreciate Mm -hmm. for their sensuous traits and for their their sensual beauty. so that, those are a couple examples of what's different when we engage with Scripture through our voices and our ears. Um, another one is that the, you know, the spoken word um, enlists the element, by necessity, includes the element of performance. Hmm. That when we have heard somebody say something, and part of the meaning is the way that they said it. Right. Yeah. So it includes the element of performance. Um, it, I, as I already said, it, it has, you know, it becomes an embodied phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It highlights the aesthetic dimension. 
um, that we encounter, it reminds us that we encounter the world and come to know things about the world through our senses. And then also, you know, sound has a social dimension in lots of different ways. You know, sound happens in a space. So right now, um, the people hearing this, I don't know how well they can hear it, but they are hearing not just my voice, but they are hearing my voice in this room, which sounds different than it would sound in any other space. So sound includes the spaces in which it sounds. Mm. It's raining outside. It's, it's raining kind outside. of echoey in here. Yeah. And sound also um, is social in the sense that we don't, when, when words are spoken, we don't ever just hear words spoken. We hear words spoken by hmm. someone. And so we hear hmm. a particular accent. We hear somebody of a particular age from a particular background. Um, all of those wow. things, again, become... And again, I think many of us can think of instances when hearing, um, hearing someone with, I don't know, hearing somebody speak to the issue of immigration in um, a very heavily accented English, hmm. where we know here is somebody who was not born in America, that makes a difference mm -hmm. to, how, to how we hear that. What I'm hearing is that, um, what I'm hearing yes. is uh, all this is very incarnational. You're, you're yeah. uh, accentuating how to speak at all is already to be incarnated, to be an embodied creature. And I think the subtext underneath a lot of what you're saying is a sort of however, um, the, the predominant assumptions, the, the reason why all of this needs saying at all is because we bring a, uh, a lens to our lives that assumes not that incarnation is I, the ideal, but that almost excarnation is the ideal, where um, if we could just separate the words from the speaker and from the location in which it was spoken and from all these things we would have some pure content that we right. can right. distill and keep in this you know uh this separated space without blemish of the world and i know that it's complicated where that comes from and what got us here but um but i do think it's maybe worth taking a moment after emphasizing all of this incarnational um, sort of traits of language and speech um, to address the sort of shadow side or the um, the reason why all of this needs talking about in the first place, which is um, and, and you get to this later on in your blog series about um, Zoom fatigue and how we're experiencing um, part yeah. of the fatigue is experiencing someone's voice without experiencing yeah. their breath and the incarnational yeah. aspects of it, but um, but, but what, what is it about this world that we live in and our preferred methods of communication right. and maybe the values that are implied in all of that right. that makes it so hard to speak in embodied ways? When I think about kind of what are the two great dysfunctions plaguing American society at present? I mean, you could probably come up with a, a pretty long list pretty quickly. But two that I think of are loneliness, like social isolation, mm -hmm. people who do not feel deeply connected to their communities. Yeah. That's one problem. Another problem is polarization, mm -hmm. where people are angry at one another, people um, are deeply opposed to and suspicious of one another. And what I, what I said in, um, in my Hutchmoot talk or wherever I wrote this <laughs> was that both of those, both loneliness and, um, and social antagonism can be thought of as aural dysfunctions that mm. we 
no longer feel heard by others, and we are no longer able to hear others. Yeah. And why? So the the deeper question is why? And and the thing is, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I am. Um, I'm also hesitating because I'm wondering how vulnerable to be with you here. Drew, knowing that people You're are watching. You're in a safe space with me, but I can't speak for any of the people watching. <laughs> so here is something that is true about me and that I'm realizing increasingly as I get older. And that is um, that I have some degree of social anxiety. Um, I, and it's maybe just in the past few years that I've been able to put that phrase on it. But I've always known that like as a little boy, I used to plead with my mother, please don't make me go to school. Please don't make me go to school. Please let me stay here with you. You know, and I still feel that way. I'm a teacher now. You know, I still feel that way every flipping here morning. Here you are at school every day. What are you please doing? Please don't make me go to school. Please don't. And it, I think, why is that? And there is some anxiety for me being around other people. Hmm. And, and now then we could ask, you know, why that is, how much of that is just me and how much of that, you know, ref reflects something deeper about our humanity. But the point is, is, I think that reflects the fact that to be around people authentically mm. That's hard. is to risk something, to be... Um, vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know, vulnus, vulnus in Latin is wound. Mm. So I've talked before about, um, probably when, when I had you in doctrine, mm. we talked about the significance of the fact that the risen Christ has wounds. Mm -hmm. You know that wonderful line from the hymn, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. So that Jesus has wounds, yeah. but they don't hurt any longer. That mm -hmm. he has wounds, but they don't bleed. And it's made me think that the redemption that Christ offers us is not a freedom from wounds, but the promise of inhabiting a world in which woundedness is no longer lethal. Hmm. So, you know, to open my body is to expose myself to all kinds of hostile forces. It's not a liability body. anymore. It's an yeah. asset. Yeah. And that kind of, like, I want to jump in and just point out that the voice, the human voice, is a very vulnerable thing. Yeah. And um, so when you're talking about this picture of it's a vulnerable thing, it's an intimate thing. Um, when you're talking about what it means to be a social creature and to relate to one another, um, I mean, the voice can be a clue into so much about, yeah. I mean, when someone's voice shakes or yes. um, when a voice, um, I mean, in, in your blog series as well, we'll get to this later, but you speak about groaning, about yeah. the groaning of creation and how beyond words um if if we are professing christians we may disagree with the words of someone but our primary allegiance is to never disagree with their groaning because groaning mm. is deeper than words yeah. it's true in itself yeah. um and so i think it's just worth sort of yeah commenting even like on the physiology of the voice <laughs> I mean, it comes no. from inside so I have this. That's um, absolutely right. Well, and can I? Yeah, I mean, go just ahead. Yeah. well, there's there's a um, a French thinker named Michel Chion, who uh, I'm not going to quote him. I just wanted to say his name. There is, isn't there? <laughs> what a great name. Well, Michel Michel, Michel Chion. Michel so, Chion. Chion. So anyway, he right. says Chion. <laughs> he says that the ear is the only organ which is both an internal and an external organ. What, what does he mean by that? So that, you know, the ear is one of those means by that, and I think, I don't know what he'd say about 
the mouth or but the ear is a means by which what is external becomes internal and you're right about the intimacy of the thing that and this is also i mean i don't want to get too far either from breath because this is what it's all about yeah, that, breath, was, that was my next that question breath anyway. is a, you know, something that originates inside of me proceeds out toward the other and enters into the other so there is, you know, again, to go back to your first question or your previous question about what's hard about this? Hmm. Um, why might we recoil from sounds? Why am I much more comfortable, and I am much more comfortable, typing comments on um, a discussion board than I am phoning somebody? And I think it is that there is that vulnerability of something that originates inside of me is going out into the world. There it goes. And, and something from outside is actually entering in. You're saying that the voice originates here, but I think in some ways it doesn't, right? There, there is a way in which breath um, doesn't start here, but maybe even in... Um, in some scriptures like in Genesis 2 or Job yeah. 34, which we're about to get to, um, there's this implication yeah. that someone had to breathe their breath into me yes. for me to breathe, and that yes, someone right. is God. And so, Steve's words, mm. there is a wind-like, breath-like character to the Spirit's activity. Names are chosen for a reason, and sometimes they tell us something important about the bearer of that name. And so my question about that is, so are wind and breath just symbols of the Spirit of God? Are they these things that were like, yeah, you know, the Spirit's, um, every time that the wind blows through the trees, I can think of the Spirit, yeah. you know, because it's, it's symbolizing. Or are they more than that? Is there something, um, this might be a rhetorical question, you might be able to hear my own answer to the question as I ask it. Is there something innately related to the Spirit of God about breath and wind? Is it more than a symbol? Um, so what would you say to that about the, yeah. this connection between breath and wind and spirit and what exactly is happening in my own breath in that very most intimate moment of breathing in and out? I do th think there is. And um, I mean, the, the kind of the biblical framework for the question um, is highlighted by the, the first scripture you read, for instance, where mm -hmm. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you know, um, you know what the wind is like. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And the English language reader, the person reading that in English, um, will miss you know, the word play that Jesus is engaging in there. Um, so many people or people who've read the blog post will already know that the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma, each of those words can be translated spirit or wind or breath. And so in John 3, in the Greek, Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus, you know what the pneuma is like? The pneuma blows through the trees and you hear it sound, and that's what it's like everyone born of the pneuma. So mm -hmm. Jesus is saying the, the pneuma is pneuma-like. It's not just, and I do think a lot of theologians treat it as if it's just kind of, kind of a weird, quirky thing, or maybe maybe at best like a sermon illustration that, yeah, you know, the Spirit is kind of like breath. But no, I think the biblical marriage between breath and Spirit is much more robust than that. Yeah. And that's, that's certainly what you see in Genesis chapter 2, mm -hmm. where God forms the human, the Adam, out of the dust of the earth and breathes into its nostrils the breath of life. And then we see throughout the Old Testament this kind of radical dependence on God's breath. Hmm. So Psalm 104, verse 29 says, He sends forth his ruach 
and they are created. If he were to withdraw his ruach, mm-hmm. they would die and return to the dust. Yeah. You had you said you mentioned Job thirty four. Well, uh, you mentioned Job thirty four. Um, but why don't you mention it? I'll sometime. mention it now. Uh, and it's essentially a actually song. the Bible mentioned it before that too. I, I just oh, so like we should give you. we should give credit where credit is due. Where were you, Steve, when Job was written? <laughs> um, okay. uh, if it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and return yeah. to the dust. Yeah. So you, basically, dust plus breath is kind of yeah. what we're talking about here. And and so in a way. The question, you know, is is breath um, a symbol of the spirit? Yes, it is, but I think that's not robust enough. The, especially in the Old Testament, the picture is more like you, know, that you are held in being moment by moment by the breath of God. In a sense, it relates to, you know, the old theological slogan of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And the idea behind that is that there is only one source of life. You know, so when when we say creation out of nothing, the the, the emphasis isn't so much... The emphasis is on... um, God doesn't have a bunch of stuff first and then says, oh, what do I do with this? Oh, I know, I can make a world. No, I mean, everything that is, is from God. Because only God has being in himself. Hmm. Everything but God exists contingently or dependently. Only God exists necessarily. So... If there is only one source of life, the life that is in you is not your life, mm-hmm. but is the life lent to you by God. And again, if you think about, um, I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been with someone as they've died. There's something profoundly mysterious about that. Um, I've been there both at the, the birth of my children and have been with Um, others when they have died and here is this person and they're a person and they can interact with me and there are thoughts in their head and they are this presence and then it's gone Mm. it's a mysterious thing and what has changed and again you think about we talk about brain waves and so on but an ancient person just knows that they were breathing and now the breath is gone and so that's the image they have of that um, our life is not just like, or is, does not just remind us, that, but it is. You know, there's a song from, is it All Sons and Daughters? It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour it out really praise. is. Yeah, like, it think really of is. My breath is God's breath. Yes, yeah. I really do think that that's, and similarly, you know, Ruach, can mean not only breath, but wind. Mm -hmm. And I do think that, again, the the God of the Old Testament is this transcendent being who is beyond and above and yet is involved in creation. And how do we speak about God being involved? Through one of the ways the Old Testament speaks about God's involvement in the creation is by the Spirit. So the wind blows, things get moved around, and it's God moving them around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that bumps up hard against a lot of the way that we think about reality and ourselves and the world, where we think there's this realm of nature that kind of runs on its own steam down here. And then here's God up here doing God stuff. Every now and then, God comes down and does something, and you get a miracle. Yeah. But no, the the biblical picture is of God who is moment by moment mm-hmm. holding creation in being and giving life to all that lives. Yeah. I think a lot of this is 
really tied up in this issue of symbolism, too, you know. And um, this feels maybe a little abstract, but I, it's, it's like a question that I want to ask. Okay. Um, and I, I just wonder if there's another word, um, because I get what you're saying of, like, it's not just a symbol. It's not like, you know, if we're really thinking about what a symbol is, uh, you know, the etching of a letter or a number mm. is an arbitrary collection of lines or whatever right. that we see and it symbolizes something else entirely that's a yeah. meaning that's abstracted so words work this way right language is symbolic right. if we're really talking about what a symbol is and i think sometimes maybe this is sort of the result of the world we live in that you're just describing where we sort of just think of things very separated out yeah. um, in our paradigm but i i I think sometimes we fall prey to sort of over-symbolizing our world so that um, meaning always works that way. Like the, the, um, there's mm. the meaning or there's the content and then there's the form. There's the, um, yeah. there's the thing that's being conveyed, the message, and then there's the, the sort of receptacle or like the carrier of the message, which mm. it's like a wrapper to a candy bar I can just chuck like in the trash, yeah. right? Um, I got the good stuff out of it. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of conversations around the rabbit room about how that can be a harmful approach, especially to storytelling where, right. no, just like the story itself is just as much, you know, if you think about a poem, the form of the poem is just as much the source of the meaning of the poem as the message of the poem, right? right. And so there's just this, it's so much in the air we breathe to think symbolically in that way Mm. um, that it feels like swimming upstream to actually have this thought experiment of like, what if I was a person who had one word for spirit, wind, and breath? Mm. And I didn't think of them as symbols of one another, but these are things that are bound together. And it's, it's not that this arbitrary sign signifies something else yeah. it's that there's something about this world that it it is you know it is itself saying something you know and, yes. and again i can't say no. i can't convey this without using words involving speech and right. breath you now that you're there's a lot there and hmm. I, I feel like i'd almost need you know some time to myself in quiet and with a piece of paper <laughs> to unpack it all well but I think you're absolutely right, and it reminds me of you know one of the books I've been reading, or I've been reading a couple of books by an Old Testament scholar named Jack Levinson, who um, has written several books on on the spirit, and he makes just this point that we want to tease apart when does ruach mean wind, just like the natural phenomenon, and when does it mean spirit. Just wind, right? Reduce right. it to wind. Right. Yeah. And he is saying, no, that you're, you are missing the point. The, the point is that it is all of these things. And, it, mm. and I think what's profoundly right about that, and this, this is something that I talk about more explicitly in some of the later blog posts, I think what the Spirit especially welcomes us into is a kind of reality in which multiple voices mm. and multiple actors and multiple energies sound and act and occur together without mm. blocking each other out where we don't have to say is that just is that just like a natural phenomenon or did god do that <laughs> you know, or is my breath my breath, or is it God's breath in me? And there's a sense in which that so misses the point. The point is that God would inhabit you, but that it would really be you that God is inhabiting, not just an empty shell. And so, is it just your breath, or is it the breath of God? Yes, it is. And here is a world in which, and it's very similar to, well, so is God Father or Son or Spirit? Yes. 
Is Jesus fully God or fully human? Yes. And the point is that we are supposed to see, and you know, if you've read much or listened to much N.T. Wright, he always talks about the world is made to be this place where heaven and earth overlap. They're not the same thing, but they're made to overlap. And the camera can't see that I'm doing this. <laughs> it's almost like, did you ever do the song when you were little? Yeah, here's the, the church. church, here's the steeple. Open it up and hear the people. So that heaven and earth are meant to be these distinct realms that nevertheless overlap and co-inhabit. And where does that happen perfectly? In Jesus of Nazareth. But the spirit is also part of that. So that, um, you know, that I mentioned earlier, God forms the human from the dust of the ground. Mm-hmm. So the, the Hebrew word for human is Adam or Adam. Um, and the word for earth or dust is Adama. Mm-hmm. So you make Adam from Adama. Um, and then the Adama is filled with the breath of God. This is what God intends that the dust of the ground would be the dwelling place of God's breath. Mm-hmm. That these two would be so at home together. And in the spirit of the title of this podcast, The Artist Creed, mm. um, analogy time, which I think I also got from you, so I'm really quoting you right now. Um, I think you've said before somewhere, sometime, um, that blew my mind, uh, just as a really good example you can have in, um, in visual art or paint, right? You can have blue and red. And if you mix them together, you get purple, right? It's true. There's, you know, there's some blue, there's some red that makes purple. If but we if had you... planned ahead, we could have had finger paints here. <laughs> we could have demonstrated that visually. Yeah, I really lapsed on that. Yeah. Um, it's all right. But with music, when you have C, the note C, E, and G, you put them together, it's not just that you get a C major chord and C and E and G kind of fade into the background, like blue and red. There isn't any more blue or red. There's just purple now. Right. Um, It's not like there's there's not any more C or there's not any more E or G. It's just C major. No, it's C major and it's C and it's E and it's G. There's this sense in which it is the whole thing, and it's you can hear you can hear audibly right. the new whole that has been made, and the greater than its the sum of its parts that is part of that, um, and that I think just is such a great um, illustration uh, to kind of meditate on of, of yeah. you know God's world that He has made of dust and breath where they come together and they make a human being. Um, it has delighted God that these frequencies that we hear with our ears can come together and do a similar thing. And, and there is something to go all the way back to the first question that I asked you. There is something distinctive about the sense of sound right. itself that shows us something true, intrinsically true about creation. Right. Um, and and it's the kind of thing that you're you're just talking about dust and breath you know they come together they're they're more than than the parts yeah 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 i think that's absolutely right and jeremy begbie has written and spoken about that and a number of people have spoken about how music you know reveals to us the possibility of um of kind of a mutual presence mm. You know where the um, you know the activity and presence of one voice doesn't compromise or diminish another, <laughs> right? Um, so, and by that account, we're not living in a very musical society right now, right? 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 The assumption is that for my voice to sound, yours cannot. Right. Yeah. I think um, I probably only go a few days without at a time without uttering the phrase non-competitive ontology. Um, There you go again. There I go again. (laughs) 
And it's, it is, in a way, a silly thing to say, but it is such a helpful concept to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is from a theologian named Catherine Tanner, who teaches at Yale. But, you know, a competitive ontology is just a way of being. And a competitive ontology says, for there to be more of one thing, there must be less of another. Mm-hmm. So there are six pieces of pie for me to have if I have four, you can only have two. If you have five, I can only have one. Yeah. A non-competitive ontology says that the presence of one does not negate the full presence of the other. Mm. So in the words of um, the Chalcedonian Confession, mm. where it says that Christ is fully God and fully human, that um, the fullness of his humanity does not in any way diminish the fullness of his deity, nor does the presence of his deity in any sense overshadow the reality mm. of his humanity. Yeah. But these can both be fully present. Um, you know, that this is, and, you know, if you want to, if all that sounds too abstract and too, you know, kind of highfalutin philosophy kind of talk, then a very simple word for that is love. Yeah. Um, The possibility of two people sharing one life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and the possibility that um, in a choir, like all these people can sing together at the same time. And it's not only that by doing so, they don't diminish one another and somehow come out even at the end of it unscathed by the interaction (laughs) no like by singing with one another they've created something new and beautiful that's more than all of themselves combined and um yeah and that kind of leads into so uh my last quote that i pulled from your first blog post Mm. uh is really dealing with this issue as well um and it's it's kind of the question underneath it is for god's breath to be inside of me um, what does that do to my breath? Is it compromised? You know, is there competition there, right? Mm-hmm. And so you say, the breath God puts into us flows out from us again. And as it does, it brings sound with it. Not just the sound of God's breath, but the sound of God's breath in my lungs, passing through my vocal cords, resonating in my physical person. Mm-hmm. So reading that, I kind of think of the human being um, the picture of a human being here is not this self-contained, isolated individual, but a musical instrument, which, you know, uh, if, if there's a piano in the room, and I, uh, which and there, there is, is over there, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I hit a, a, like an A note on it, um, mm-hmm. and there's also a guitar in the room, the open A string on the guitar is going to resonate sympathetically, right? Yeah. Just by being there. You don't have to do anything to yeah. the guitar. It just, it resonates. And you hear that A string, not just from the piano, but from the guitar too. Yeah. So a musical instrument, that this, this sort of vision of the human as a, a musical instrument is one in which we vibrate, we resonate with our surroundings mm-hmm. um, and w- with this intermingling of creation and creator. Um, but then there is a question wrapped up in that when God's breath sounds through my vocal cords, doesn't it get distorted along the way? Do we ever hear God's voice in its original form? Mm -hmm. What could possibly be gained by God choosing to pass his breath through my body? Mm -hmm. Um, and I know we kind of have an answer to that in the incarnation. You could, this is like a Sunday school thing where you could just say, Jesus, Jesus. Um, and it could be true. Like that's a good answer, but, um, but it's worth kind of touching on yeah, that, that concern, you know, because this is about this. Que- this is a question about the artist's voice. Mm. Is the artist's voice preserved? Yeah. Um, and is God as an artist, is his voice preserved if he's always just speaking through us silly right. humans all the time? Yeah, it's a great question, Drew. Uh, you know, um, I think God does want to speak through us and God does speak through us but that's not 
the only thing that God wants to do in giving us breath. Um, and that God, so that, well, maybe take a step further back. What really struck me as I was writing that blog post is that by choosing to breathe into us, I mean, if you just think about it in a very literal, physical way. Sure. And think about, I don't know, even if, have you, have you ever taken like a CPR class? No, I should. Yeah, yeah, I suddenly feel a lot less safe in the room. Yeah, wow. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, if you, um, I remember the, one of the, the dummies that we practiced on had um, some kind of, you know, inflatable bladder or whatever in, in sure. inside. So we practice blowing. If you blow in, even if, even if this is an inanimate object, you blow in, what happens? That or think about you know inflating a balloon. You know, you blow into the balloon and you let it go. It comes back out. Hmm. And so just thinking that God chooses to create beings who not only inhale but exhale. Hmm. And that strikes me as either really silly and trivial or incredibly profound. Hmm. But I'm I'm tend toward the latter. That God could have created beings that only take in. But the very means by which God gives life means that we are not only receivers, but givers of breath. It's beautiful. And when breath leaves your lungs, even, again, I, I said I've, you know, I have been in the room with someone as they passed from this life, and that last breath, sounds hmm. as it leaves the lungs. It sounds. God's desire is that his creatures would have a voice. Mm-hmm. That we would add our voices to the world. It's not a competition. This is what God wants. Yeah. And so, does my voice somehow distort God's voice? Well, God, first of all, doesn't put his the imagery of Genesis 2 is not God putting his voice in me, but sure. his breath in me. Yeah. God's desire is that my voice would sound. Yeah. Now, are there times when God wants me to deliver a message from him? You know, I mean, so the, the question, the way that you asked it, it's a great question, but it kind of gets me thinking toward the kind of, you know, the game of telephone, where you start a message over here, and then as you pass it along, it gets more and more distorted. Like Bible translation. Right, know, totally. God said something, and now we're way over here with the... But God does not create human beings so that they can faithfully pass along these five ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when I repeat them, maybe I don't get... No, God wants to create living beings with voices. There are four Gospels. Right, there you go, yeah. Not, not just one univocal, you know, yes. God yeah. said this. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And even, you know, so with my children, sometimes I, we have taught them to use the English language as they've grown. My wife and I felt as if that was good and right and fitting. So we made that choice in raising them to teach them the English language. And we've done that so that in some instances they can reliably pass along a message. I mean, there are times when I'll phone home and say, Sophie, could you go ask Mama if she sees my wallet on my dresser? You know, and I want her to be able to reliably pass that along and not say, Papa wants to know, you know, (laughs) is there any pizza in the oven? But is there a wallet on the dresser? But for the most part, I haven't trained her to use a voice so that she can perfectly pass along some set of messages I've given her, but because I want her to have a voice. I want her to contribute something to the world, Hmm. and I want to be in relationship with her. I want to speak to her and have her be able to speak back. And this is what I think God wants in giving us breath, is to give us life and to give us a voice. Um, and do we sometimes use our voices in ways that grieve God and that, and that 
um, damage our own humanity and the humanity of others. Absolutely, we do. But the problem is not one of like acoustical fidelity. The problem is not that I used mm. my voice instead of just repeating what God said. You know, so you can repeat words that God has given you. I think of Amos, you know, away with me, away from me with the noise of your songs and your praises. And here they are repeating probably psalms, hymns of Israel. God is not glorified by just the faithful reproduction of words, Hmm. right? That you honor me with your mouths, but your hearts are far from me. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, John chapter 5, verse 38, 39, somewhere in there that, you know, you search the scriptures because you think that by knowing them you have life, but you don't realize that they testify of me. So the point is not just, I want you to, and we're back again to kind of the the candy bar and the wrapper thing. It's not just, you know, um, don't mess up the candy bar by putting it in the wrong wrapper or something like that. Um, But, (laughs) you know, the... The point isn't just to deliver content, right? Um, but the the point is to be the kind of creature that God desires, you know. Mm-hmm. And and one of the ways that we are the creature that God desires is by using our own voices with the breath that He's given us. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. Um, because it really kind of segues right into the second blog that you wrote in this series, mm-hmm. which is going to be called The Breath Between Us. Uh, and, and so we'll continue that conversation in episode two. Thanks so much for listening and watching if you're watching. Special thanks to Mindy Cook, who uh, filmed this and made this possible in video form. And um, yeah, thanks so much for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.